Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. For now. In this episode, we're back! (laughs) After a few weeks of both of us being, well, I guess really in recovery, uh, it's time for us to take a look at classic beverages that have been famed for their supposed health benefits. The messy, confusing world of stout. Uh, Together, we're going to touch briefly on the history, but we're going to try and focus mostly on what it means to be a stout in today's world. I told you there was a reason we reprised the pastry stout episode last week. Because it was just too good to not listen to again, right? Exactly. I think that was actually a really great interview. (laughs) But before we do that, have a listen to these messages from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishing books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers, as well as titles that promote understanding and appreciation of American craft beer. Visit BrewersPublications.com to learn more. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, as always, if you have any interactions with them, make sure you tell them that you heard them here on The Brew Files. Now, quick word of warning here. There is sort of a danger whenever we're talking about stout from a podcast or a beer writer's point of view. It's the beer history thing. As I always say, beer history is not really history. And aside from the world of IPA, there's probably no better place in in the world of beer to prove it than all the stories and legends around porter and stout brewing. Denny, I know you've heard of more than a few legends. Oh, man. From the time I started brewing 22 years ago, uh, stout was the stuff of legend. And, you know, the more of it you hear, the more of it you question. Exactly. So instead of talking about the whole world of, like, fabulous tales of, like, three threads and beers being blended and Harwood and the Bell Brew House, uh, what I want to do is mostly focus on how the style exists today, because after all, winter may be coming to a close, but as we know, International Everyone's Irish Day is just around the corner in March. So we're going to touch a little bit on some pieces of history, and just because I do think it's kind of hard for you to talk about Porter and Stout, and remember, most of the episode is going to be about Stout, it's kind of hard to talk about those without talking about some of the history. As we've always said in the past, there is a very muddled history about styles, the sort of Procrustean bed of styles that we have with the world of the BJCP and the professional uh, tasters panel and all this sort of stuff. Well, that's sort of unique and with a very odd viewpoint in comparison to the rest of history. Throughout British brewing history for Porter and Stout, you see a lot of rise and fall of gravities, word changing their meanings, things like stale, mild, Porter, Stout, and they're all various definitions at various times and various parts of the country and the world that you're in. And remember, it's very important that commercial brewers rarely give two flips about what actually makes a proper style. They care more about creating a drink for the public to drink and really to buy. Brewers also really cared about the bottom line. After all, it was a business. And so therefore, if you wanted to stay in business, you had to care about the bottom line. Ingredients changed often based on availability, taxation, new discoveries, whether or not uh, there was a war going on 
etc. Uh, very few purity concerns, which we'll touch on a little bit later because homebrewers like their rules. And in fact, there are a number of stories of brewers in the past adding some very dodgy ingredients like acids and whatnot to cheapen the beer, to shorten the time that it would take in the tank, to get it to sale sooner. Uh, so once again, proving that the market doesn't always bear out for safety. Porter and Stout are also usually credited with leading to sort of the industrialization and the scientification of British brewing and kind of really modern American brewing as we know it. For instance, the hydrometer first really appeared in British brewing around the time of Porter and Stout brewing, as did the thermometer. Both of those were tools that were not really used in the brewing world, and they really saw wide adoption during this period. So kind of cool to see. Not to mention that our beloved triangle test uh, came from Guinness research. Yep, uh, that was around the 1890s, 1900 period. So yeah, uh, mostly in the stout age. Right. But yeah, it, it's totally true that Porter and Stout Brewing is really in a large part almost synonymous in my mind with the rise of science and brewing. Porter and Stout also saw the rise of uh, pale malt and the invention of the first really truly black brewing grains, as well as the widespread use of colorants. And we'll talk more about that later. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between Stout and Porter. This has been at least as long as I've been somewhere around the beer world, this has been one of the big debates. What's the difference between a stout and a porter? And it's really comes down to what the hell makes a stout a stout and not a porter? And my answer is, who the heck knows? <laughs> I have my own definition, but uh, after, uh, I mean, there was a big discussion on the AHA forum not too long ago about the difference between stout and porter. And uh, I thought that uh, my definition was going to just be obviously the correct one. But you know what? A lot of people made very persuasive arguments for other differences besides what I cited. I do think some of this comes down to a touch and a feel type of thing. Now, when I was coming up as a homebrewer, and I think when you were coming up as a homebrewer as well, the, the line was always drawn about the use of uh, black patent malt or roasted unmalted barley, right? Exactly. Right. And it was it was oft touted that, that the rule was porters used black patent or a roast black malt, and stouts used roasted unmalted barley, and never the twain should mix. And that's exactly how I've always defined it. Right. Now- if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that uh, uh, that's kind of a line of horse pucky, <laughs> at least historically speaking. Uh, human endeavors are rarely that clean cut. I know uh, homebrewers, most of us being scientifically minded, we love clear cut rules. And that line of about black patent versus roasted barley is uh, sharp enough that you can you know, cleave a clean gem on it. If you look at the historical brewing records, uh, you know, particularly drawn up by Martin Cornell and Ron Pattinson, you will see, uh, yeah, no. They they used black patent, they used roasted barley, they used whatever they had on hand for whatever beer they were making. So there is no at least clear historical definition between the two. The other thing to also keep in mind, at least historically speaking, is that Porter had almost 100 years of existence before black patent arrived in 1817. So again, things shift over time, but even then we'll see that. And this does bear out a point real quick. Why is it called black patent malt? Because the process was patented. Exactly. So the problem with making a truly dark grain is that grain will burn if you heat it up too high for too long in one particular spot. And so, and it doesn't matter the heat source. It could be wood, peat, coal, coke, direct with the flame, indirect with hot air, whatever. If you're getting it up hot enough to actually start to turn those kernels that dark, it's going to burn. And so the patent behind black patent, the thing that actually allowed you to really make a high colored malt with the temperatures that you had and the level of dryness that you're going to get to without actually burning is essentially a, a big drum roaster. And the thing about the drum roaster is that it keeps the malt moving the whole time, right? So move, 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 move. And it never actually gets hot enough to, to burn. It never stays still long enough to burn. It's constantly being agitated. Okay, now that we know that black patent versus roasted barley is not the line that you can draw on, what is the line that you can draw on? How does it mean now that we've moved away these uh, legacy uh, legacy meanings of stout and porter? Well, I have my personal feeling, Denny, you said that you have yours. Mine is, I think in this day and age, now that we know, okay, so stout porter originally was you know just a classification of strength. 
And that varied over time. And they had all sorts of things, lesser stouts, superior stouts, double stouts, on and on. Uh, oh, and by the way, there were even pale stouts, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, there were pale stouts. So the white stout actually predates modern American brewing. I, I don't even want to go there, man. <laughs> um, so the, the thing to me is that, I mean, like, and now if you take a look at stout, I mean, you'll see that stout encompasses this big, long range from dry stout to imperial stout in terms of booze and flavors and whatnot. So what really makes a stout, and yes, I'm also including pastry stout in this, which is the reason why we replayed that episode last week. My working hypothesis is, at least from a modern perspective, what I see is that modern porters tend to have sort of an edge, a, a bite, and kind of an acid twinge of that black black coffee, like black, black coffee that's been sitting on the burner for too long. Um, stouts, to me, still have a roast character, but it's not as ashy and acrid. To me, they're kind of softer, more chocolatey and, and coffee. And the better ones tend to be more integrated. And I think some of that may come to play with some brewers playing around with that a historical notion of uh, black patent versus roasted barley. But I, I think there's also water chemistry involved. And I, th- I think that's just where I'm going to draw my line is on how the roast presents itself in the beer. I, I would really agree with that. Uh, I know that for the last several years, uh, it's been real, real popular to use carafa in uh, in a porter or stout, or even do the uh, you know late edition of dark grains to mellow them out. What I found was that doing that, you mellow out that porter or stout to the point where it becomes like almost insipid, and there's there's nothing there. Well, at a certain point, you're almost making a Schwartz beer. Yeah, exactly. So after after a long time of trying to make, say, my porters as uh, smooth and mellow as possible, I realized I was going the wrong direction and actually went back to throwing a, a, a touch of black patent into them just to give them that edge. Well, I mean, that's kind of like my take on all these newfangled IPA hops that we have out here. They're kind of softer. I still, me being me, I still like to throw just a touch of Chinook into a lot of my IPAs. Just yeah. to give it a little, yeah, little yeah. oomph. So anyway, brewers out there, my recommendation is skip the carafa when you're making a porter or a stout. Go for it. Skip the late edition of dark malts. Learn how to deal with the pH and do it right. Well, we're going to get there. I know. <laughs> I know we will. All right. And then the other thing is I also think that you can't talk about stouts without talking about sourness in stouts. Because if you look at the history of porter, porter always had that Britannomyces, it had a Venus quality to it. Uh, it did have an acidification to it. Um, and at least in terms of modern stouts, there's always been sort of the notion that Guinness still has a sour extract that they add to it. So now remember, Guinness is brewed and, and all sorts of different flavors and different styles. And they still produce in Dublin what they call the Guinness Essence. Do they really? Now, this is this is one of those pieces of lore that I have never been able to nail down. I would just like to put out a call out there. If anybody knows for a fact, you know, that Guinness does this, please let us know. Don't tell me what your buddy told you. Don't tell me what you read someplace. I want to know if you know for a fact. So, in theory, the Guinness Essence is essentially a pre-soured wort that's pasteurized. And then that wort is actually, or beer is actually shipped around, and that's added to give a little bit of sour tang to Guinness. And if you notice, I mean, when you when you drink Guinness, there is a little bit of a sour tang. But to Danny's point, is that actually from an essence, or is that from a little bit of roast malt, or or whatever? Yeah. Um, again, it, it's great lore, and I'm not saying it's incorrect. What I'm saying is that I personally have never seen evidence that proves it. So that's what I'm looking for, guys. Do I think that you need some sort of sourness in a stout for modern palates? No. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And again, avoid any ashy and acrid flavors. I don't want to chew. I don't want to chew on an ashtray when I'm drinking your beer. So uh, don't make it taste like Starbucks coffee. Is that what you're saying? Yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> so let's get into. I told you we were going to only focus on the history and whatnot for just a little bit. Um, so let's get into what I think that you should be using when you're making a stout. Uh, and again, we're going to mostly focus on stouts here. The ingredients uh, that I use, okay, let's start with malt because for for a stout, I think the malt is key. You know, it is the base of this thing. And I would say like the majority of the uh, beers today, the majority of your grist is going to be a pale malt. 
don't do the um don't do the old thing of the you know a third brown a third amber a third something or other don't do that i've done that it's bad now with the amount of flavors that are in this beer you know particularly with all those heavy roast characters in there you could probably get away with whatever you had on hand in terms of pale malt but i still actually like to use a good flavorful ale malt so i mean i always have maris otter in my brewery if you have golden promise that's good if you have a good local base malt go ahead and use it i know epiphany makes a pretty good uh, craft ale malt uh, as does uh, the mecca grade it's mecca grade la manta is their ale malt right right so mecca grade la manta would be pretty good in there too Again, I would personally avoid using modern brown malts because much like tequila, I had an awful and traumatizing experience with it when I was younger. I did make one of those historical porters, you know, third amber, third brown, a third this, that, or the other. I could never get that beer to taste like anything other than burnt biscuits. See, and I use I use brown malt in my bourbon vanilla imperial porter, and I think that that's a, a really key ingredient in it. But uh, Well, but how much do you use? Oh, geez, I would have to look at my uh, recipe, and I don't have it in front of me. I would guess not more than 10 to 15%, something like that. And this is a good time to point out that if you're using brown and amber malt, one maltster's amber is often another maltster's brown malt. So uh, pay attention. Uh, some of the what's sold out there is brown malt is actually about 35 love bond. I prefer uh, the darker stuff up around 70 yeah, and the good thing is, uh, with a with that a well, a historical historical porter that I did with the brown malt, I did learn the power of Britannomyces, which did actually help soften the beer somewhat, but still tasted like burnt biscuits to me. Yeah, right. But since we're talking stout, uh, I I definitely agree that brown malt has no place in a stout, at least these days. Um, or if you do use it, be judicious. Right. Um, now, that also brings up crystal malt. Now, crystal malt is, in a lot of ways, treated as the enemy these days. I've been quoted as saying people use too much crystal malt in, in their IPAs and pale ales. Uh, I know Denny feels a little different. I, I've been quoted as saying people don't use enough. In a stout, I actually think a good uh, medium or darker crystal is actually a really nice addition for helping build out some body uh, without you know really overdriving flavors. I tend not to like to use the, the super, super dark ones, but I do like say a nice Simpsons medium, which comes in somewhere in that 50, uh, was it like, no, it's like 60 to 75 level bond. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously if you're going to make a dry Irish stout, you're not going to want to put crystal in it, but if you're making an imperial stout or milk stout, something like that, it's definitely an ingredient you should consider. Now here's the big one that we got to talk about the dark malts. Denny's already given you his, his piece on uh debittered malts, but I'll get there in a second myself. Now, the big key is it does not take much to make a dark beer dark with modern dark malts. And I see so many recipes out there that have like a pound and a half, two pounds per five gallons. If you do that, it is going to, uh, well, it's going to taste like an ashtray or, or <laughs> over roasted coffee. You know, and this is probably a good place to cite the uh, recipe for a classic Irish dry stout, which is 70% pale, 20% flaked, and 10% roasted. So you can see that, uh, you know, there's there's like a 9 to 1 ratio there between the lighter malts and the darker malt. Yeah, and actually, and that 10% is usually where I put my ceiling for dark malts in any beer that I do. Yep. Yep. And, and I think even, and actually as you go darker, or I should say, or as you go heavier, like into your Imperial Stouts, I think that even actually can kind of drift down a little bit more. This is also the time when I tend to break my general guidelines on one type, a type of malt. Uh, if you, you heard me speak about brewing on the ones in the past, you know, I tend to be very, um, circumspect about adding more than say one black malt or one crystal malt or one toasted malt to a beer, because I tend to think, you do too much of that, you get into a place where everything kind of tastes muddy. Here with a good dark beer, I actually don't mind um, a few different dark malts because I do think they all bring something different to the party. I think they make for something kind of a little more interesting. So for like a bigger stout, that would include things like having some, maybe some black patent or like the chocolates or a kiln coffee. Kiln coffee is actually a really nice malt. A friend of mine swears by it in his porters uh, and his stouts, and it adds a nice little flavor to it. Um, in particular, I really like uh, some of the pale chocolate malts that are out there, like uh, Fawcett and Crisp. And I think Simpson's 
either makes one or made one, and I don't think I've seen it for a while. But that was the one I think I started off with was the Simpsons Pale Chocolate. And again, I really like the both the color, but I also like their flavor contribution. It's a little bit softer, um, and but still brings something nice to the party. And then we get into the debitter black malts. These are color providers without the burn. Denny already talked about overusing them makes the beer insipid. The classic of these is the Weirman Carafa special malts, which are their chocolate malts that have been debittered. They've got a one, a two, and a three. I don't think they have a four. I only think I've seen three. They remove the husk, and along with it, a, kind of a good portion of that acrid, ashy character that you can get with some uh, dark malts. Now, I've mostly used the Carafa malt in the in the past. Uh, Brees makes a Black Prince uh, that's very popular with American homebrewers, and also their Midnight Wheat malt. And then I know Dingaman's has a debittered product, but I have not played with that one at all. Now, again, I think the debittered malts are good for adding color without adding a lot of burn. But again, I don't think you want to go all the way. Don't don't try and make a a, a, a stout full tilt boogie without anything else in it. To Denny's point, like a little black patent to give it at least a little bit of bite. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm for stat, I would go with roasted barley. But again, if you're one of those people that was thinking about putting two pounds of roasted barley into your recipe, uh, I would say probably what you're going to want to do is if you want it that dark, cut back on the roast barley and go for one of these uh, debittered malts for the rest of your color. And now just to switch gears slightly, we're going to go with it. We're going to talk about a technique instead of an ingredient. One of the unique characteristics of a dark malt, like, you know, any of these that we've been talking about is they don't really provide any sugar to the beer because the starch has pretty much been destroyed. So, you know, we tend to kind of ignore them for gravity calculations and we don't really have to uh, mash them. I mean, anybody who's ever been an extract brewer of grains uh, knows that you can steep your roasted malts without any problem. And so there, this has led to a couple of different techniques that people have used where they skip the mash entirely. So the first is mash capping, which we've uh, tested in the past. You guys remember we did that Schwartz beer down in Australia and people could tell the difference between the mash cap beer versus the beer that had the malt all mixed into the mash. And mash capping is literally, Hey, I'm into my sparge, no dark grains in the, in the main mash. I get ready to do my sparge and I sprinkled the dark grains on top and let the sparge water carry the color in. Now, this has been uh, very heavily advocated for by Gordon Strong as his technique that he loves to do. Uh, you know, and of course, he's won multiple Nikazi awards, so it's kind of hard to say uh, he's completely wrong. But <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the uh, real dichotomy right there is that I don't like any beers made that way, uh, or I, I generally don't like beers made that way. But man, how can you argue with Gordon's success? I don't know. I can, but that's because I'm stubborn. Yeah, right. It's bad judging, right? Yeah, exactly. It's awful. The BJCP <laughs> needs to, uh, the BJCP needs reform. Uh, who's the president of that thing? We should talk to him. Oh, yeah, right. right. But no, so the whole idea behind the mash capping is basically get the color, but because you're not in the mash at the hot temperatures for the long extended period of time that you're doing your mash, you're also not extracting the harsher flavors of the dark malts. Now, some even take it even further than mash capping and they make a homemade version of a brewery colorant. Uh, the most popular one out there is Cinemar from Wireman. And all you do is you finally crush your black malt, which by the way, doesn't take much because black malt kind of shatters in a million pieces when you look at it funny. Take about a pound and soak it in a quart of water overnight. Nice, clean, filtered, no chlorine or chloramine water. Let that soak overnight cold and then strain it out. And you get a very inky black substance that you can use to color anything. Now, in Germany, that's used sometimes to make, say, Schwartz beer. And the UK, there have been a very long history of uh, colorants there to add to beers to change the colors so that a brewery can make, like, say, a single mash and make multiple beers out of it, just changing the color around. Uh, here in the US, the, if you remember back in the days when we had Michelob, and then there was Michelob Amberbach, the only difference between Michelob and Michelob Amberbach was the addition of a caramel coloring syrup. Now, and just a quick word on that technique. Uh, I first heard about this oh, way over 20 years ago when Marianne Gruber of Brees came up with the idea and George Fix wrote about it. This has probably been lost in the murky depths of history, but you're supposed to use three to four times as much dark malt as you would otherwise when you do that method. There you go. It makes sense. Because I mean, really what you're trying to do is you're making 
something inky, inky black. Right. Again, as Denny pointed out, like either doing the debittered malts, the mash capping, or this sort of uh, homemade cold extract, you know, they're great for removing a lot of the acridness from the beer, but be careful how far you push it because, yeah, you can make something that's really insipid and really, as I was saying earlier, you're kind of making an ale version of Schwartz beer, which is tasty, but not a stout. And so you cannot, you absolutely cannot talk about British brewing, stout brewing, any sort of brewing over there in the UK without talking about adjuncts. Here in the US, adjuncts tend to still have a mm, dirty reputation, a less than perfect (laughs) reputation. But we're trying to deal with that. Yes, uh, largely because of uh, people's antipathy towards, you know, say Budweiser and Coors. Um, we have a very large anti-adjunct sentiment, but I do think that you cannot talk about British and uh, Irish brewing without talking about using adjuncts because they used them all over the place. And the most common addition is flaked barley. Flaked barley, I think to me, is an important stout addition in a lot of ways. It looks like your old-fashioned flattened oats, like you just went out and opened up the can of uh, Quaker oats. Uh, only instead, it's not malted, and it is barley. And what I always get to it is I get a creaminess, a softening uh, sort of roundfulness, but without the rich unctuousness of oats. How's that sound? I generally almost always prefer flaked barley over flaked oats, but I don't use a lot of either one. Speaking of oats, you all know I love them. I mean, what I think the second episode of the show was all about oats. Whether you're using flaked, steel cut, malted, golden naked, etc. I think they're pretty spectacular in a dark beer. I know Denny doesn't necessarily uh, share my proclivities in this way. They give richness without sweetness, a chewiness without heaviness. They do give an unctuousness, which can either be good or bad. Like, for instance, I wouldn't put it into a dry stout. Um, I'm particularly fond of oat malt uh, in all of its weird glory because it... Um, well, it has a history in stout usage. It doesn't get used very often anymore in stouts, at least historically, in any sort of older stout. I think the last one was uh, Macleay's, uh, Macleay's Oat Malt Stout. That one had up to a third of the grist being oat malt, which to me is going to be really intense. But uh, I haven't done that one. Also on the topics of adjuncts, you cannot talk about the the history of British uh, brewing without getting into the world of invert syrups and brewer's caramels. Uh, Here in the States, we don't really see any of these, but they are absolutely essential to a number of classic British brewing practices and styles. You see them if you look at the historical uh, brew logs, you'll see them in stouts and porters all the time. We don't tend to use them here, and we'll get more into those when we do a sugar episode. But Brewer's Invert is everything from a pale number one, which is very much like um, Lyle's Golden Syrup, which you can find here in the U.S., all the way to... A terrifyingly dark 225 Lovabond uh, syrup number four. And so there's one, two, three, four. Those are the standard syrups, and they're just basically different colors. And you make invert syrup pretty much by taking uh, sugar and water and heating it in the presence of an acid and sometimes an enzyme called invertase. And then essentially walking a tightrope to heat the sugar solution until it darkens and darkens and darkens. Very much like if you're trying to make a caramel. It's it's a delicate thing. It is not for the faint of heart. You can do this, but uh, there's also a really great uh, resource online on unholymess.com that is all about taking a pale invert syrup that you can make relatively easily and using blackstrap molasses to approximate those darker syrups. So instead of taking hours to very carefully cook your sugar syrup to the point where it is at that number four stage, you can cheat pretty quick just using a dilution method. Obviously, for stouts, you'd want to focus your attention on the darker syrups. And I know people out there, and even I will kind of say from time to time, I don't really see the need for them in terms of what we do, at least in terms of the pale syrups. Uh, I do think, much like we revolutionized the world of making a Belgian quad here in the States when we started bringing in the dark candy syrups from Belgium, I think the dark invert syrups can actually make a, a, a difference. I'll include a link to the Unholy Mess blog entry about how to do pale to number four invert syrups, including the dilution method. None of the recipes that I'm going to talk about here in a moment are going to include them, but I do think they're fun to play with, and I think they're kind of important to know and understand that they're there. 
other sugars that would also play a role in a number of uh, stout recipes, as we said, were uh, uh, sort of colorants like the malt extracts uh, and uh, brewer's caramels. Our needs here at the homebrew level, we're not trying to simplify or streamline our production day, right? Because we're not trying to do one mash and produce two beers out of it a lot. I don't really see much of a need for it at our level, so I've never really used these. I did use the Amberbach caramel once. It was very interesting, but I don't really have a need for that. And I assume you don't either, Denny. I have not come up with anything yet that I thought would be appropriate for that. Let's move over to hops. You know, every American brewer's favorite topic, hops. Uh, unfortunately for Stout, I'm going to tell you, lay off the Citra. <laughs> yeah, really. No, you want you want pretty much just a, a really smooth, mellow hop. You're not looking for a lot of hop flavor or aroma. You just want a, some bitterness there to balance things out, and you want it to be a, a smooth bitterness. Huge shocker here. I tend to use neutral hops to bitter, always. So in British styles, a lot of times I'll either use some of my beloved Magnum or I'll use like something like, say, Target or Challenger, which are both higher alpha British hops. Historically, you would see a metric ton of EKG and Denny's favorite hop, Fuggles. Um, but let's not. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, something like, I mean, this is a, a really good place to dig into some of those old school hops like Willamette, for instance. Yeah, no, Willamette's great as a replacement for EKG and Fuggles in particular. Yep. Um, I think those are great. And that's the reason why you see them featured so much. I, I'm trying to remember, I think it doesn't uh, Deschutes Porter, I think, uses Willamette in it. Uh, you know, I would have to look. Again, to me, it's firm, clean bitterness and the best quality hop that you can find. Part of the reason why I tend to shy away from EKG and Fuggles, I mean, Denny tends to shy away from Fuggles because he thinks they taste like dirt. Um, but I tend to shy away a lot from EKG because the quality of the EKG pellets that we get over here is dodgy. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, they're not grown a lot in England anymore, and the ones that you find might be old or not well cared for. Now, the amount of hops that you're going to use on the back end is going to depend upon what kind of stout you're you're making. Um, I tend to keep my hop additions minimal because I want to emphasize the other characters of the beer. I have used Fuggles before. I tend not to anymore, um, mostly because I'm afraid Denny will judge me. <laughs> I judge you for other things, but, you know, hops, I don't know. Well, I just don't need to add to the pile. Yeah, right. But again, find the best quality hop that you can. Remember that older brewers, particularly, you know, like historical brewers in the UK, were absolutely unshy about substituting any hop into any beer as long as it did the job. It, again, since this is not trying to scream mango, pineapple, passion fruit to you, almost any hop will do you here as long as it's good, clean, well-cared-for hop. Yeast. There are things about yeast. The obvious answer, of course, is use the Irish ale yeast from any of the yeast manufacturers that are out there. So that would be uh, Y-Yeast 1084, Irish ale, White Labs, WLP004, I think, it might be required by law that every yeast manufacturer that's selling to the homebrew level has some sort of Irish ale yeast. They do tend to throw a little bit of that diastole note, so a little bit of butter, particularly when used in the heartier beers. For a more English-style uh, slant, I actually really... My favorite's always been the Y-East 1275 Tim's Valley, which I believe is also equivalent to the uh, WLP 029 Burton Ale, or the Y-East uh, 1469 Yorkshire Square, or the uh, WLP 022 Essex Ale, if it's available. It's actually probably one of my favorite British strains, and it's rarely available. But, you know, that all makes this distressingly British-centric. You know, I thought if we're talking about current trends in stouts, many, 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 many of them are not British, and I tend to prefer uh, American ale yeasts in the stouts that I make. Sure. I mean, this is also another place where you can you can go into the into the USO five ten fifty six WLP one complex. I mean, there's more of those that are made. Y yeast uh, twelve seventy two is a great one. American ale two isn't that the Anchor Liberty? Uh, yeah, it might be, but that which is probably used for their porter. Probably, and I have. I know it's a joke, but I have to say, Y yeast fourteen fifty is going to be a great, great yeast for an American style stout. Now you're absolutely right. I mean, there. I mean, again, these are not yeast forward beers. These are these are mostly all about that malt character, um, particularly the roasted malt. So you can do a lot. I do tend to have a very Anglo Irish uh, viewpoint on these. So fair call. The other thing that is also very much in that same vein is I like open fermentation for any of those strains that I mentioned. 
So uh, we've talked open fermentation in the past. For homebrewers, it's super easy. Just you know, slap a piece of uh, foil over the top of your carboy, over the airlock, whatever you're doing. Uh, let that ride. And most importantly, most important, you have to watch when your ferment's doing. When your ferment is finishing out, that's when you put the airlock on. Uh, so keep an eye on what's going on with your ferment. Uh, open fermentation is not just a uh, permission to walk away from your brewery and leave the fermenter open for two weeks. Because all your protection is coming while you're having active CO2 evolution, and that coryzen is up there doing things. So if you're going to do open fermentation, pay attention to your timing. Otherwise, I make you no guarantees about the health of your beer down the line. Pretty much that's exactly right. If you want to do it, do it. Uh, I don't know that there's any real advantage to it, but uh, it's like you say, man, if you do it, keep an eye on it because once that coryzen falls, you're going to want to cover it up. On to water. So there is a reason why stouts and porters have become associated with London and Dublin. The highly carbonate waters of the area work very well to sort of buffer that acidic nature of the dark malts, which is important because you need to maintain your mash pH. That's also important from a flavor perspective, but don't forget your mash pH. And that's the big battle here. Those roast malts, anytime you get a malt that is dark, it's going to be acidic. And even in those small quantities, it can, uh, it can throw havoc with your mash pH which is another reason why I suspect that some people like capping because then they don't have to worry so much about their mash pH. You can use uh, chalk. It is the traditional addition. So that's a calcium carbonate to uh, muck with your carbonate levels. Uh, However, it is kind of a pain to dissolve properly. So you can sit there, you can add it to your water and stir, 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 and it doesn't really dissolve. I think, remind me, Denny, in order to actually really properly dissolve Chalk, you have to bring the water to a boil, right? Uh, no, you have to dissolve it with CO2 pressure. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So you have to put it into a bottle with some water, put CO2 pressure on it, shake the crap out of it. Why, why do you even want to deal with that? Yep. And so because of that, a lot of uh, homebrewers are using uh, pickling lime. Yeah, it, it's definitely my choice. And uh, you need to use a whole lot less of it than you would use chalk, too. So that's always a good thing. And the other thing that you can use, uh, depending upon your sodium levels, if they're low enough, you can use baking soda. Um, I can't where I'm at because my sodium levels are too high. And if I add baking soda, oh boy. Yeah, right. And I have practically no sodium in my water so that uh, if I just need minor adjustments, that works really, really well. Uh, but remember the, the rule, people. Adjust for flavor first, see what that does to your pH, and then adjust for pH. And then on uh, the other bits for carbonate and chloride, I like to start my carbonate level somewhere around 155 ppm, and then a little bit of chloride in to just kind of soften the roast bite. Again, take time, dial into what works for your taste. As Danny said, it's about the flavor as well as the mash pH. So uh, you'll see some of these water profiles, like for Dublin or London, where the carbonates are up over like 300, 300 plus. And you could do that, but that's not so much my my taste. But remember, we've talked on the podcast before that when you take a look at like what Americans do for water treatment versus what, say, British brewers do for water treatment, the British brewers tend to be much more aggressive about their water treatments than we are. And last thing here that we're going to talk about before we dive into some of the styles, it's going to seem odd to talk about this, but fining. And there's a reason why I think you want to uh, find a beer that's pitch black. To me, there's a problem with these roasted malts, which is that, remember I said they shatter if you look at them funny, right? Give them a mean look and suddenly they're in a thousand pieces. Um, when they're in those thousand pieces, that also means that there's a lot of little dross that's part of what's happening. A lot of little fine shavings of roasted malt. And if you don't do something to clear them out, those roast malt shavings can effectively stay up in solution because they're very, very light. And if you don't either force them out with the yeast by a real hard set or find them out, which is what I actually would like to do on this, you have to give them time then if if you're not doing the finding. The finding will help draw all that out and actually be able to get you not necessarily a clearer beer in terms of your light allowed through the beer, but a clearer beer in terms of the flavor and it'll be less acrid. So to me, uh, this is the thing I like to do. Gelatin is super traditional. It's super easy, uh, super cheap. It's also super not vegan. Uh, there are other options out there that are good for doing vegan clearing, 
But I do know it does seem kind of funny to say that there is an advantage to finding even a dark, dark beer. Yeah, well, I mean, and believe it or not, it does actually look better. It kind of like gets the sparkle to it uh, as opposed to like a, a, a dull kind of, of look <laughs> for a better lack of a better word. Uh, so, yeah, people say, oh, you know, I, what do I care if I, I find a dark beer or not? It doesn't have to be clear. Well, you know, people... It does. And besides helping the flavor, like Drew mentioned, it actually does make a difference in the way it looks. All right. So let's uh, dig into some styles here real quick. Uh, styles, Irish Dry. I think we all know this. It is the champion stout that has obliterated the meaning previously as uh, applied to stout of strong. <laughs> yeah. Guinness, we've all had it. We know it. And for many of us, it was our gateway beer. And for me, it was also the way that I I kept running with my friends until uh, super late. I used to go to New York all the time. And if you've ever been around New York, you know, the bars there can stay open until like all hours. And so I would spend a lot of time hanging out with friends in my 20s, you know, staying up until 4 a.m., drinking the whole time. And my secret was that I drank Guinness the whole time. And I always had friends of mine looking at me going, how can you how can you be upright after having that much Guinness? That stuff is so strong. Only for them to not know that it was the weakest thing on the menu at the bar. Yeah, you know what? I used to have an Irish brother-in-law, and he would take pride in the fact that he could drink 17 pints of Guinness. And one day I said, well, yeah, man, of course, because it's got less alcohol than Budweiser. And I thought that he was going to, like, break down. <laughs> I will say that today, as a more experienced taster, Guinness, to me, at least the baseline Guinness, tastes very anemic and watery. It doesn't have uh, – it has that little bit of sour tang, but uh, – and a touch of roast, but not much else. So it's kind of uh, kind of interesting where that was my gateway beer, and now I just kind of find it bland. But a good Irish stout should be a kind of a wonderful, never-ending glass of beer. And it's also surprisingly fast to make. So one of the uh, best I've ever had was by the woman who taught me a lot of stuff that I know about yeast, uh, Dr. M.B. Rains. And Mary Beth uh, turned her stout around from kettle to glass in four days and it was absolutely inspiring to me it's actually what kind of uh, inspired me to start looking at all the techniques that i started to do that then became the expressway article you know so how to how to make any beer that you want or any beer within reason in 10 days or less and that was really kind of an eye-opener and it's it's just kind of interesting because that means that you can you can wait a while and have fresh stout on ta on tap for your St. Patrick's Day party. Now, uh, let's don't forget that there are a whole bevy of stouts that, that are out there that are not built on that Guinness model, um, and they have a bit more body and flavor to them. And that's even before we get into sweet stouts and oatmeal stouts and cream stouts and pastry stouts and stout heart seltzers and everything else. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> well as, as one of the aforementioned ones it was milk stout or cream stout um and you know well before there were any milkshake ipas the primary place that you used lactose in brewing was in one of these and all of that was was the lactose uh, sitting there to help uh, round out the bite and supposedly good for nursing mothers that was always part of the health claims for these things uh we've had a nursing mother beer uh, program uh, here on the show so some truth, some not truth, but still at the same time, if you want to really kind of build up the body to a stout and also round off some of that hard edge, a little bit of lactose is actually not a bad thing. And when I say a little bit, a lot of these stouts end up having like, say, a pound of lactose for a typical homebrew size. You know, and uh, milk stouts are a style that I have never really been into very much until I discovered Ale Song. <laughs> They have a, a line of milk stouts uh, called Rhino Suit, and they blend them with other things, sometimes coffee, uh, Mexican chocolate, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know what they're doing differently with their milk stout than the other ones I've had, but man, do I love that beer. Well, it sounds like somebody needs to ask them. Um, yeah, because my problem is I've had a lot of milk stouts out there that, to me, taste distinctively hammy. Yeah. So, I, and that that's always bothered me. Uh, like a new mommy character in my stout. Not a fan. Now, not everything has to be built on this British Irish mode. And, you know, there's a whole world of American stouts out there, although they're not around as much anymore. Um, and really, you know, take up that, take up that alcohol a little bit, get up into the, into the sixes, 
maybe the sevens, and then give the give the world's taste buds a middle finger by adding a ton of hops. And this is where you know we were talking Willamette, but also a lot of your Cascades and and your old seas are in here. Again, no Citra. And then of course there is the Russian Imperial Stout, which uh, we've well we've talked about the pastry stout version of it. We haven't actually had a show on Russian Imperial Stout, but to me, what I kind of feel disappointed about in the American craft brewer scene is that everything about stout here has become all about either a Russian Imperial Stout, probably bourbon barrel aged, or a pastry stout, you know, with a Russian Imperial Stout base and a bunch of stuff thrown into it. These are the barley wines of stouts, and I can totally get why people are totally all after them. But I'm kind of, uh, I'm I'm kind of a bit disappointed that we've allowed these. Well, on the American side, these ten to fourteen percent monsters take over the world of uh, stout beer. Yeah, well, you know, I uh, I went on a uh, old Rasputin thing over the uh, holiday season. For some reason, I just really had a taste for it and drank several of them. I think that's more like around eight percent, isn't it? Uh, nine, I think. I was, but yeah, I, I was still able to walk after I drank it. Yeah, well, Old Rasputin's uh, one of my favorite beers out there, but there are a lot of people out there who will try and tell you it's not really an imperial stout. They they think of it more as a Baltic porter. Well, they're wrong. <sighs> there you go. <laughs> it's just that simple, isn't it? <laughs> and then, of course, there is the world of what I kind of think of as the great forgotten stepchild of the stout world. And I just wrote a column about this for Craft Beer and Brewing, which is now available online, which is the export slash foreign stout. And it's kind of that middle child that rests between, you know, say an Irish dry stout and a Russian Imperial. They tend to come in at, say, you know, like seven, eight percent. They're a little bit denser. They're a little bit chewy. They're largely associated with the Caribbean and also Nigeria. Last year, I think it was, uh, Guinness actually offered a mixed pack of stouts that had a whole bunch of different types of stouts in it from different periods of time or different ideas of the stouts from different periods of time. And in there, there was also one that was their Antorpen stout, which is pretty close to the favorite stout that I have from have had from them, which is the one they make in Dublin for export only to Belgium. And that stout is big and dense and chewy, but not overpowering and comes in at like 8%. And it's a wonderful glass of beer, which is part of the reason why this style has still remained my favorite. Other stouts, Denny? What else do you like? Oh, man, it's, it's really hard to say because I just don't drink them that much. Like I said, I mean, Old Rasputin and uh, pretty much any of the Ailsong Rhino Suit series. Uh, the uh, Deschutes Obsidian Stout used to be a big uh, favorite of mine, but I haven't had that one for a while. Oh, yeah. Good old Obsidian. Yeah. Now, let's talk a couple of recipes because, of course, it's not a show unless we leave you some recipes. And real quick, two recipes. One is going to be my Kyle Dry Stout, which is my version of an Irish Dry Stout. Original gravity is actually a little high on this one, 1039. Oh, boy. Uh, with about looking at about 3.8% alcohol. Um, and 23 IBUs and about 28 and a half SRM. And it's real simple. Six and a half pounds of Maris Otter or your pale malt of choice. One pound of flaked barley. A uh, half a pound of pale chocolate and a half a pound of roasted barley. Now that's a slight variation on what Denny was saying before, where you know you got your uh, flaked barley and then uh, just roasted barley. Uh, in this particular case, I kind of like that little addition of the pale chocolate in there. Uh, the hopping is real simple: just a quarter ounce of Magnum, big surprise for me for sixty minutes, and then an ounce of EKG or Willamette would also be a good choice here uh, for about ten minutes. And that's it. Ferment it with uh, an Irish ale or even an American ale strain and uh, turn it around and enjoy. And then for the foreign export style stout, uh, I have my what I call my overseas stout. I've also called this one like uh, missed the boat before, uh, but it is an OG of 1077. And for a five gallon batch or five and a half gallon batch, five gallons into the fermenter, uh, 13 pounds of Maris Otter, a pound of a British medium crystal a pound of flaked barley, and 12 ounces of pale chocolate malt. Hop schedules on that one, ounce and a half of Challenger, which comes in about eight and a half uh, alpha acid, an ounce of EKG, or again, Willamette, and that one would come in at 20 minutes. And then use uh, Irish Ale, or if you want to be really goofy, use Safflogger 3470. It works. 
Yeah, it certainly does. It's a great use for that kind of thing. Yep. On that one, I actually would do just a, a, a higher infusion mash than I do on most things, which is in this case 154. I tend to mash almost everything around 150 and do a 154 mash for 60 minutes and go for it. Either of those beers are actually relatively quick to produce, uh, particularly the Kyle Dry, and you can turn around and have one of those beers ready to go in no time. Thoughts, Denny? Um, no, man. I I think that that about covers it. You did a brilliant job. What can I say? Hey, not too bad. <laughs> I also now have that on recording for use yeah. in future leading procedures. Th- that's right. I, I think that we're going to hear that sample showing up a lot in the future. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of what exactly makes a stout a stout and why it's a set of styles that people seem to have forgotten about, at least the non-hype beast versions of it. Remember, there's plenty of time for you to get ready for St. Patrick's Day. And also remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the websites, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is called Not One More Vet, and that's veterinarian. Uh, we found out that veterinarians have a way higher suicide rate than any other segment of the population, maybe four times higher. And these are the guys who take care of our little animal buddies, and so we want to support them while they support us. So click on one of those links on our website, give us a few bucks, and we'll pass it along. Now remember, until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply.